You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings be upon you all. Welcome once again here in Drive Time Show. You're listening to Anikur Rahman. And I'm joined by Dr. Tariq Bajwa here from London Studio, Voice of Islam. I welcome uh, you know, Dr. Tariq Bajwa and we have another presenter uh, in the studio. Uh, and he will be uh, you know, with us today and... Uh, he will be uh, you know starting show from last two weeks he's be joining us and uh, hopefully he will be with us all around the show and uh, we'll having discussion on two subjects as we do normally and this uh, first uh, our show uh, we will be discussing uh, bridging faith communities and mental health for this we will be <clears throat> having some guests as well who will be discussing this topic in depth and if you would like to share your views on it please do call us on 0208-687-7878 and you can visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and tweet uh, you know at voice of islam uk moving on uh, to the first uh, topic which we're going to discuss as i mentioned um, you know, in the Holy Quran, chapter 13, verse 29 and 30, Allah the Almighty states that uh, whoever, those who believe and, uh, you know, whose heart find comfort in the remembrance of Allah, uh, it is the remembrance of Allah that hearts can find comfort. Those who believe and do good works, happiness shall be theirs and an excellent place of return. So those who see God and, you know, the more they turn to him, the greater is their peace of mind. This shows that search after a God is the innermost yearning of human nature and real goal of man's life. And that when the goal is attained, man be, begins to enjoy a perfect peace of mind. Then, you know, he rests as it were in the very lap of all knowledging and all powerful, powerful God, a maker and controller of the universe. You know, Office of Nation statistically published reports in February 2022 where they say that those who identified with no religion were significantly less likely to be satisfied with their health than those who identified as Christian, Hindu, Jewish or Muslims. Now, prevalence of long-standing impairment, illness of disability was significantly lower among those who identified as Sikh compared with several other religious groups. And smoking prevalence was significantly higher among those who identified with no religion that, you know, several other religious groups. And those who identified as Jewish, Christian, or with no other religion reported a greater mean level of physical functioning than those who identified as Muslims. So, you know, those who identified as Sikh, Hindu, or Christian reported a significantly greater mean level of mental functioning than those with no religion. And, and, and those who identified as Sikhs were significantly less likely than, you know, several other religious groups to be, you know, um, probable mental, uh, mental uh, ill health. We want to discuss today, uh, you know, as, as we were discussing about the religion, that the religion or the God Almighty, and through him we can find peace, and through religion we can find peace, and the report I've just mentioned. So it's, it's very important to discuss what is faith. How come, you know, this gives you peace? 
how come people are those who are not following any religion are less likely to be you know in, in, in peaceful conditions so for this we'll be discussing you know what is faith and uh, uh, you know taktori baja i would like to uh, request you to just continue this conversation that you know just explaining what is faith see when we see we have looked at the statistics and we see that you know there, there are various denominations who have identified and then they have related with the with those statistics uh, with the figures that how many people who relate themselves to a particular religion um they are involved in some kind of mental health problems and the incidence of course we see that it's quite variable i, I mean so some some places they say the the six they are less likely to be uh, having the problems whereas um you know in the last statistics it said that those who identified as six were significantly less likely than several other religious groups to be in probable mental ill health so there is a contradiction uh, within these statistics as well i think the main reason is that it's not only that some some particular type of um sort of faith somebody belongs to is is going to change um the um, probability of getting an a mental ill health it is because how how much you are involved into a particular religion True. how much you believe in that how much do you practice that as well because you merely identifying somebody identified mm. as a christian because he is born in a christian family somebody is born as a in a hindu family and he identifies him as a as a hindu whereas he has nothing to do with the religion they they don't practice it they don't they don't know the even the basics of it like nowadays you know the other day we saw um you know the the jewish people who are themselves condemning what is happening in in uh, the current conflict and and they are themselves t- talking about that their religion does not allow uh, what is happening in in uh, the the area which is affected so uh, so getting involvement into a particular religion i think it's important thing is how involved you are how that particular religion has brought you closer to your god because it is in god that we find peace and if a religion although it claims to be from god but does not take you to that god and does not build up that relationship with god that is not going to help just merely by identifying that i you particularly belong to this group or that group of course it gives you support it gives you a community which gives you support as well and that is also i think a major factor is that sometimes you feel lonely you are not um, you know you you are um, in a place where you are very very um, few number of people around you who know you who you would like to talk to you who you would like to be in company with and that's why you 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 go into an isolation which is a social isolation and the social isolation itself can lead to mental health problems so i so i think yes there is a relationship of mental health um to the faith but faith um, most commonly it it is helpful to have some kind of faith but but i think of course the faith which is a true faith which takes you to god is the one which which brings you peace and that is how it will um take you away from the mental ill health or mental health problems as you guys you said what is faith faith in the context of religion uh, is very defining for a person and faith in god enables humans to be thankful for the blessings they enjoy and to be patient 
in times of difficulty, for they believe that nothing can happen without his will. That means that whatever happens is is in accordance with the will of God. Um, although God Almighty has given the principles of how he works, and he has given also, he has very clearly mentioned that he does not change his principles, uh, he does not change his rules, uh, and there, there has to be special situations, special conditions where you find that he is behaving other than his normal routine, which he has set up. That, of course, you know, if you if you will eat poison, you are likely to to suffer uh, from uh, the effects of it. Uh, if you jump from a, a you know a tall building, you are likely to to injure yourself or die. So that is a principle that you know th- that you fall. The 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 fact that the gravity works and brings you down to 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 earth uh, that is a fact. It does not change. So the thing is that faith in the divine being also prompts people to be more in tune with their souls and to maintain a constant connection through prayer, supplication, and reflection. Ultimately, faith enables them to develop a deeper vision, one which goes beyond the sight of their eyes and the signals of their minds. So in chapter 2, verse 258 of the Holy Quran, it stated, Allah is the friend of those who believe. He brings them out of darkness into light, and those who disbelieve their friends are the transgressors who bring them out of light into darkness. These are the inmates of the fire, therein shall they abide. So this verse uh, shows how important it is have, to have faith and belief, and how close it can bring one to Allah the Almighty, how situations can change for the better. Now we're going to go to our first guest. Uh, we have uh, their pre-recording, uh, Jamila you know, Hakmon, and uh, you know, she, she's a research fellow at the Wolf Institute, and we're going to listen to her, and then we'll be right back after the uh, interview. For today's show, we have Jamila Heckmoon, who is a research fellow at the Wolf Institute. She is also a former board trustee at the Muslim Youth Helpline, chair of the Muslim Mental Health Alliance, and an executive board member at the Muslim Council of Wales. Hi, Jamila. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um. You research for the Wolf Institute. Could you tell the listeners a bit about what this consists of? Yes. Uh, So for the Wolf Institute, I am a research fellow and I lead on our Faith in Mental Health project, which predominantly uh, is focusing on Muslim mental health. Mm, Yeah. Um, I researched a little bit about this and I found out that there's a Faith in Mental Health project. What are yes. the fi- what is this and what are the findings from this project? Um, so the Faith in Mental Health project is a two year project. Um, and in the first year, we looked at the existing literature that exists on mental health and religion from the three Abrahamic faiths. So Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Um, and then from that, we established that there really seemed to be a need um, to study Muslim mental health further um, because of initial research suggesting that uh, Muslims were less likely to seek support for their mental health. and um perhaps having a higher need for faith specific mental health services yeah. because they already exist for the other faiths so in terms of the muslim community specifically what needs to be done to make them feel more confident in coming forward about their mental health because as a muslim myself mm-hmm. i know that we didn't 
like we didn't have conversations growing up about our mental health or even now there's we rarely sit down and have a conversation about the men our mental health so we don't know who's struggling or not so what do you think needs to be done to help this mm-hmm. that's a really great question um so I think if you'd have asked me this question perhaps um five six years ago I would have said the main thing that we need to focus on um is stuff around stigma and taboo around mental health within the Muslim community mm. now I think mental health conversations both within the Muslim community and the wider community they really um it's become more acceptable to speak about mental health you know organizations workplaces are really good at trying to make sure employees um, have good mental health, things yeah. like that. So now I would say um, one thing probably is access. I mean, while stigma and taboo still exist, I think, you know, we can say that um, things like access to support is something for the Muslim community. So what I mean by that is knowing where to go, knowing about the organisations that do provide mental health services, um, knowing that you can go to your GP, knowing about places like Muslim Youth Helpline, Muslim Counselors Psychotherapists Network, all of these organisations. Um, and then on the second page, it's looking at religious literacy um, amongst practitioners. So, for example, you don't want to be going in for therapy or counselling and giving your uh, practitioner an RE lesson. You want to be able to go in and speak about things and then have an understanding so that when you say terms like Ramadan, they know what you're Mm. talking about. You don't have to sit and explain, you know, what that means to a Muslim uh, or why it's important, for example. Yeah. also cultural understanding by practitioners you know um not all muslims are from a south asian background for example and often south asian and muslim are conflated they're put together um so those kind of understandings so one of the things that we're recommending is an increase of religious literacy from uh, by practitioners um and there are great resources out there um but it really i think needs to be a priority so in terms of therapy so there yeah. should be something put into place that's mandatory for therapists to you know, have faith, faith-based training. Not just therapy. I think that um, with any uh, professional who may come across <clears throat> Muslims with men- needing mental health support, so it could be yeah. youth workers, teachers, just having that baseline of religious literacy, even knowing what the five pillars are at a very basic level. Mm. Um, and then as you move up for higher needs of support, perhaps when you're going to counselling or therapy, perhaps then it's, you know, um, understanding stories from the Quran or Hadith about how the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, you know, dealt with grief and 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 using those teachings in your support because then that will um, give higher outcomes of uh, recovery for Muslim clients. Yeah, I think it will make them feel that you know they have some connection, a connection yeah. somewhere, so they might feel more confident in telling their problems as well. Yeah, and better understood. I mean, um, I think that that also kind of links to stigma and taboo as well, right? So people are suffering with their mental health um, and they're wondering, you know, whether it's real or whether they should get support. 
And if then you are presented with examples from your own faith and you're thinking uh, it can really go far in diminishing that stigma and that taboo because you're like, oh, I'm not the only person that's been feeling anxious. There are examples in my history about, you know, feelings of grief, sorrow, etc. Yeah, yeah. Um, Talking about faith as a whole, why do you think there is a lack of faith in mental health care? Um, I think, you know, sometimes talking about faith can be a stigma in itself within um, uh, within some services. You know, people don't want to get things wrong either. Um, and I think for a long time, perhaps there's been an idea that um, your faith has nothing to do with your mental health. Mm. When studies suggest that it can really provide a, a great role in um supporting outcomes having a high level of recovery um and helping people through their mental health challenges yeah um so what like how can organizations such as charities and uh organizations like that come like bring forward more tailored support to people do you think um so i think it's about looking at the individual not um with religious literacy you've got to also then bear in mind that not all muslims are the same not yeah. all christians are the same not all jewish people are the same i think that's really important as well so um you know many uh therapists counselors um do uh look at the individual as a whole and think about the individual as a whole and that's the same when you're you're treating muslims even though someone is practicing Islam they might practice in a different way um to other people and so whilst having that knowledge that religious literacy it's also then looking at the individual as a whole um but I think people educating themselves is always going to be something that helps whether you know for example um Cardiff University offers an uh an online course in muslim mental health um for practitioners so they can have a, a bit of a background um you know even going on something like bbc bite size and looking at gcsd re and looking at yeah. how different faiths you know um approach certain topics just I think to have that general knowledge about all yeah things. yeah and especially because you know if it's been a few years since you've been at school and doing RE you might have forgotten a few of these things so there's no harm in kind of educating yourself in order to help um support people better yeah um finally where can our listeners find out more about the Wolf Institute and the project that we were talking about yeah so if you uh go to the Wolf Institute website which is www.wolf that's w o o l f .cam c a m .ac.uk um and then we've got a research tab and under that is current projects um and it's got a list of our current projects um uh including our faith in mental health project Thanks so much, Jamila, for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. And it was a good and informative interview. Thank you so much. Welcome back after the uh, pre-recording of uh, Jamila. And she was giving some insight on this topic. Moving on uh, to <clears throat> another subject as we're discussing, uh, you know, a very important uh, topic, uh, which is, um, you know, bridging faith communities and mental health. And uh, we've been discussing that what is faith and uh, is it just merely, you know, saying that you're Muslim or you're Christian or Jew, 
can uh, give you uh, you know, peace or is it something you have to be practicing and indeed you have to be practicing, practicing and following the true teachings of the religion to have that peace which God Almighty has states in these scriptures. To moving on, uh, one of the things, you know, sometimes this question comes up that our spirituality uh, and religion is the same or is something uh, two separate things. And we need to understand that, you know, spirituality and religion are, are linked. But spirituality can be more general and, uh, you know, include many other things. And spirituality can mean different things to different people. Or, you know, you can follow a common spiritual belief. You can be spiritual without being religious. And religion and spirituality can help you to develop inner strength, peace, hope, and, you know, optimism. And one of the things as mentioned, you know, uh, there are people, maybe they're following something, they think they're spiritual, they are... <clears throat> We will look in the in the entire in the world. There are some places they follow some rituals and they think they are you know they are getting their spirituality through this. But ultimately, you won't see those people in peace. They are in some kind of trouble, so some kind of you know uh, after something to to uh, keep changing or you know they are in stress in 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 some way. If you're following a true religion which comes God from God Almighty, a scripture which God has bestowed, you know, sent uh, uh, to, uh, to 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 prophets, and we have front of us, if we are following that, indeed, then the true inner peace can be attained. So, as I mentioned, you know, religion and spirituality can help you to develop inner strength, peace, hope, and opti optimism. And religious is based on, uh, you know, shared belief, whereas the spirituality can be seen as an individual belief or feelings. And this can be your own experience or belief in, in something beyond yourself. The Holy Prophet of Islam, peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, you know, he says that, O oh Allah, make me content with what you have provided me. Send blessings for me therein and place for me where absent thing with something better. So we find through this that uh, there are two different things. One is religion, is a teaching where you can follow, you can have inner peace but one is spirituality which is go person to person how much you know effort you put into it how much spirituality you want and how and, and it's your own effort which makes you spiritual moving on uh, to you know faith and mental health as as happiness is something that comes and goes you know with with the ups and downs of life the holy quran focuses on the importance of finding inner peace and tr tranquility for example when uh, we lose uh, a loved one Sadness overtakes us, but our hearts can still be at peace if we are infirmly, you know, grounded in faith. And remembrance of Allah is the key to this, as is stated in the Holy Quran that surely Allah's remembrance do the heart finds peace. If you are feeling like you know you do not belong anywhere, find comfort in your faith and community around it. And it's very important. Sometimes that's very true. Sometimes. And if we have a faith that, okay, we have come from God as God Almighty says in the Holy Quran, that I am the one who has created you. And one day you have to return to me. And when we see a loss of a dear one or, you know, the beloved one, that God Almighty is the one who gives you strength and make you understand that you have to, you know, the, the person I have sent him in on the earth, now he's back to me. And in either way, you understand that he is in, in, in a comfort you know, if he has done good, definitely God will give him a comfort in the hereafter. And the person, the, the, loved, the loved ones who are here, who are remain behind, definitely they are in peace because they know their God. 
when Allah the Almighty, somebody has a great bounty, Allah the Almighty, Allah Taala takes care, take care of him, you know, regardless if he has left this world. Um, of course, I mean it's, it's also important that uh, you know one understands uh, what is what is actually mental health because what um, our topic today is up to bridging the gap between you know uh, finding the relationship between faith and the mental health, and we discussed the faith, and we have discussed the spirituality. But well, what is mental health? So mental health is a state of well-being that enables people to cope with the stresses of life, realize their abilities, learn well and work well, and contribute to their community. So that's uh, that's the definition of mental health. Uh, it's uh, an integral component of health and well-being that underpins our individual and collective abilities to make decisions, build relationships, and shape the world we live in. So, so it is not limited to one thing. It is actually the functioning of um, us as a whole um, in the society we live in, and we have to fit into this society, and uh, we might be perfectly correct in what we think and what we what we believe and what we practice but the thing is that is it in accordance with the uh, the acceptable levels of the society because the society uh, may not accept something which you are doing and we, particularly if it is um, also the other people are getting involved into it or maybe if being affected by what, whatever you are doing. And if, if that is the case, then, you know, obviously it is not acceptable. And then we have to be, um, be having an, a, a mental health assessment, whether you, your functioning of your brain is okay or not, or is there any anything where you need psychologically or anything you need uh, in the form of uh, medicine so that, you know, because there are lots of neurochemicals involved in your brain, and they, there is a very delicate balance of these neurochemicals in your brain. And if one is uh, lacking or one is reduced and the other is increased, then the balance is lost. And when the, when the balance is lost, you can be, you know, you, you, particularly what I'm, I'm talking about is the uh, affective mood disorders. Like sometimes you, you feel happy for no reason. Sometimes you feel low for no reason. You're depressed. And uh, there is a normal level. So when you cross those normal levels, you go either below the normal, below normal low levels, or you go higher than the normal high level. Then you know, then your mood is affected, and you can be, you can have very grandiose ideas, and you can have be, um, you can claim to be something you know superior, which you are not practically, but you are not aware of it because you don't have an insight into it. So that's why that is the condition where your mental health is affected. So, of course, spirituality and, and religion, they, they are different because you can, be, you can be a spiritual without being a religious as well. And um, you don't have to be of a particular religion to be spiritual. Um, anybody can be spiritual, and you can have spiritual experiences. You can have a spiritual development. You have moral development, which is associated with the with your uh, your your mental health as well. So all these things they go hand in hand. They go 
together and they have to be to have a symbiotic relationship with each other. Otherwise, it does not work in the society and you cannot call this society a healthy society where people are not finding themselves comfortable and they are not getting the support which are needed. And then particularly, you know, the, the mental health has been uh, made a taboo and it had been a, a stigma for people even just to tell somebody that, you know, somebody in the house is suffering from a mental health problem and people would not come out with that because they would think, oh, um, they have, he might have difficulty in future because of his illness at the moment. So sometimes getting, uh, you know, getting a relationship, getting a um, uh, sort of into business as well, all these things they do, do matter and that's why it has been made a stigma. But people more and more now as they are becoming aware of these conditions and they do not want to suffer unnecessarily so they do come out um, and seek help and of course there are uh, services available although uh, in here in UK we have had problems with the, the funding of uh, as it is generally in the, in the funding for the health um, the, particularly the mental health side is being has been affected and uh, a lot of it is a social uh, conditions which need addressing and because of that also people are suffering from the mental health problems so they all need to be addressed and unless that is addressed the problem is going to be there you're very much right dr taik baja one other thing you know i would say that we have to look in the past as well you know, mental health, Some, if we go in past, we see that these things were not there if we go back in history. Just because, and I would say, you know, uh, that uh, many people, regardless they had uh, any religion, people were religious, people were, you know, they used to worship, they had uh, that connection with the bond with God Almighty. They had less desires, you know, and uh, everything contributes, you know, something you are not... Uh, uh, getting on, on a certain point or your wishes are not fulfilled there's something sometimes you go in that and sometimes you hurt hurt by somebody you get uh, in that situation but whenever you have a firm belief in God Almighty even though you know you're hurt or you have uh, there's so many other things in your life you, you, you carry on living it because you know you you believe that if nobody is with you God is with you and sometimes you know one uh, thing is depression which is somehow linked with it one of the things which is interesting thing that uh, following religion is one thing, but exercise is very important as well. When you do exercise, you feel relaxed. And one of the incidents I remember, you know, a colleague of mine uh, was told the by the you know the the caliph of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, and uh, you know, in his holiness mentioned particularly to his wife to do boxing. You know, it gives you relaxation. The the, the anxiety or the depression you have, it goes away. And because, you know, you can take out your stress on that that, that uh, punching uh, bag. So what I'm trying to say is religious is one thing, but doing exercise is very important. It goes hand to hand. And even, you know, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said if you want to become a religious person or a spiritual person or pious person, it has to be, you know, a, 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 a momin, uh, you know, a spiritual or pious person. You have to be strong. Uh, you know, you have to be phys physically fit. To, to you know uh, to, to even uh, perform all kind of things in your life and to, to 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 become a religious person is very important and that's how you know you can uh, connect with the almighty in, in a more uh, b better way so 
as we are discussing uh, this topic, I'll carry on, uh, you know, the uh, discussion forward. You know, on November on twenty first November twenty twenty one, the worldwide uh, head of Ahmadiyya Muslim community, you know, the fifth Khalif is Mirza Masood Ahmad, had a virtual online meeting with members of Ahmadiyya Muslim Women Association from Sweden. You know, one of the members asked His Holiness. Uh, advice for those individuals who do not take mental health issues as seriously as they take physical health issues. On this, you know, Hazrat Mirza Masood Ahmed Sahib, um, the head of Amdiya Muslim Association, uh, may Allah be with him, uh, said that those who do not take mental health issues seriously are gravely ignorant. Those who develop depression or any other mental health issues or those children or adults who are diagnosed as autistic, they should be given appropriate help and treatment. We should take care of them. Whatever possible treatment is available, that should be utilized. You should also compassionately care for their feelings and emotions. Those who do not do so are very much ignorant. Another you know, attendee asked His Holiness how they can establish a strong connection with Allah the Almighty on this, His Holiness said that observe your daily prayers in a way that you feel enjoyment in your prayer. If you offer your prayer rapidly or you know, quickly, then you cannot establish a connection with Allah the Almighty. If you go to friend's house and you ring their bell and only greet them from outside and leave quickly after greeting them, that friend will wonder what kind of friend it is who did not even come inside despite the fact that she invited her to, to come in, have a tea and talk and spend some time together. But she just greeted from outside and left. How can she be a friend? She cannot be a good friend. Friends who are there are those who sit together and talk to each other and share their joys and their worries. Similarly, to increase one's connection with Allah the Almighty, Allah has said to observe the prayers. Worship of God is the purpose of our creation and so we should fulfill that purpose and the best way to do so is to observe the prayers in such a way that you can fervently feel that there is a connection with Allah the Almighty and Allah the Almighty is listening to you. So again, as very beautifully His Holiness has mentioned that first of all we should not take it you know lightly this is an issue which has to be addressed and we have to take care of that you know that person's feeling and have a you know best treatments they are by the grace of Almighty we are living in a country where all kind of uh, you know uh, if, if, if you know uh, treatments are there for, for, for this uh, uh, purposes so it's very important that when you feel that you are going through anxiety or depression or having mental health issues, you should seek help. It is very important. There's no shame in it. And, you know, sometimes in, in some communities they, they, they say, okay, you know, uh, how come he ha he, she can have uh, mental health issues and they use some r wrong words which is not appropriate. It's not something, you know, we have to hype up. It's something very normal if you have a physical health problem, so as you have a mental health problems. So as we seek help for physical for physical health, similarly, we should go and seek help for, you know, mental health. And one of the things, as, you know, His Holiness mentioned, 
connection with Allah the Almighty is very important because there's so many times comes in the life where you think you are depressed, you have nothing to do, there's mental health issues going on, you know, you're now feeling happy, you know, there are some, you know, somebody, somebody hurted you, so there's so many things can be said why the, the reason of having that issues. For that particular reason, to having a strong bond with Allah the Almighty, it helps you a lot. It helps a person, you know, who's going through it. But even then, you know, because he gets a, a strength from Allah the Almighty. When anybody prays to God Almighty, you get strength from Allah the Almighty and you, you know, stand up once again. God Almighty helps you to come out of that situation. So both things goes hand to hand. God Almighty says, yes, you, you, you should use the means, you know, to get it resolved and, you know, by going to a doctor, seeking help. And on the other side, we should be praying and have faith firmly on Allah the Almighty. Um, another important thing is that, you know, you, Islam teaches us the moderation, the balance. Allah commands in the Holy Quran, that Allah commands you to have a balance. The balance is the basic, mm. and that is that is what is justice. So the thing is that when you are trying to have um, relationship with God Almighty, you are struggling, you are working hard, and uh, then you want to do uh, something which is called uh, making an effort, called mujahida. Mujahida means that you make an effort, a special effort, uh, to seek the player of God. And, and people have been involved in, in various types of exercises, which is beyond the normal routine, daily prayers and, uh, you know, the uh, superaggregatory prayers at night as well. But people have, have gone to the extent where they would be, you know, doing some some exercises or repeating a certain words or reciting the various chapters of the Holy Quran for long. And, um, you know, once a person came to the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that he, he wanted to keep a fast, you know, continuously. And and the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him, he, he forbade him. He said, that, no, you should do. Um, you you should you should have right for yourself as well, and you should keep a balance. And he said that I, you cannot do more worship than I do, and I have my family. I look after them. I give them time as well. I do keep fast, and sometimes I I leave it. Sometimes you know. Um, so so there is a balance in my life. I give all sorts of uh, activities I do, and I'm involved in that. And I'm not only you know, just doing the worship of Allah. I'm also um, giving the due rights of whatever should be given. Um, similarly, similarly, the promised Messiah, uh, the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, he also, you know, he he, experienced, he did uh, like continuously six months fast where somebody asked him whether he could do it and he said then, no, I have been given special um, sort of strength to, to do that and to bear that. So you should not, do that and you should uh, keep a balance in your life. So I suppose we got our first guest uh, with us. Yes, we have uh, Masana D'Souza with us, uh, uh, who's the member of the Janki Foundation Steering Group. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us today. For inviting me to join you. Uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us. Uh, Masana, moving on to our first question. Uh, can you please tell for our listeners what is the Yankee Foundation and what does your role involve? Okay, so Yankee Foundation is a UK charity promoting spirituality 
quality in healthcare. And there have been great advances, as I'm sure everyone's aware, in the field of medicine on the physical level. However, it's not so much on the human-centered spiritual aspects of human beings. And we particularly support health professionals, anyone in the caring profession, nurses, doctors, social workers, counselors, for their own well-being so that they can be more balanced, holistic, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, whatever that means for each person, to be able to offer a high-level holistic service to their patients and clients. My role as I'm a member of the steering group mm -hmm. of our organization, and also I'm one of the senior facilitators and trainers in uh, values in healthcare, a spiritual approach, and maybe we can speak about that later. Yeah. So why do you think, uh, you know, the faith plays a big part in mental health? Yes, faith... And, of course, faith means different things for different people. Mm -hmm. uh, my understanding that if a person ascribes to a particular religion, then their faith will be based on that spiritual knowledge that they're receiving. Uh, faith, though, on a broader context means what do I believe in? What do I believe who I am? intrinsically and what is my true purpose for being alive at this time in the culture the race the gender uh, the uh, either spiritual or religious following so faith is a much deeper level and for me it's very much focusing on the positive attributes being positive and having that inner self-care, self-respect that then generates and flows out in relation to family, neighbors, colleagues, and the whole world human family. Um, okay. So earlier we were discussing about faith and spirituality. Are, are they different? And if so, how do they differ? Well, as I said, faith, because... If you'd asked me what's the difference between religion and spirituality, I would maybe answer it differently. As I said, faith is a very personal belief system that each human being will have. And intrinsic to that is spirituality. And people may use different words for that. For me, spirituality is based on human values. So the value of self-respect, the value of care, the value of respect of others. It also values in listening, in understanding, being open to understanding self and others. And spirituality can take us on a wonderful inner journey of rediscovering, reclaiming who I truly am that allows each person to grow in all aspects of their life, their mental processes, as well as their physical and emotional. So for me, it's a much broader freedom. Faith gives me a base 
for what I believe in. Spirituality opens other doors for me to claim even more who I truly am and live from an authentic place, which is what humanity needs at this time from each of us. So values in healthcare is a program of the Junkie Foundation. Yes. Uh, could you tell us about this? Yes. So this is a program that we specifically designed for health professionals. And it's all experiential participatory, so people get a chance to uh, focus on many aspects of development. And the first module is building resilience, a response to stress and burnout. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners uh, can uh, feel, yes, most of us are on a stress or burnout level. So how do I build resilience and bring in more strength and compassion and the ability to adapt and adjust to the rapid changes that are happening in society. The values that we base our training on is we have a module on peace, how to come back into our original natural state of peace, no matter what is happening outside in the world or in the family. We have a module on positivity, how to reframe negative thoughts and feelings and bring them into a more balanced, positive approach that then benefits others as well. We use a number, and compassion is another key one, compassion for self. Many carers often forget to take care of self first, and we say this is not selfish, it is essential. Another one is cooperation and valuing yourself. And then we have um, seven tools, spiritual tools, that we weave through the workshops. And one is creativity. Another is play. We think it's really important that adults learn how to bring out the joy and play in life. Deep, sacred listening is another. And there are a number of others as well. So we are really offering a very deep yet uh, reflective and fun process that supports health professionals and carers to tap more into their own value systems and be able to discover where maybe the gaps are in their own self-care that maybe then reflects on the care they're giving to their patients. Okay, so how important is that that people of all faiths are able to talk about their mental health freely? Oh, it's essential. Um, nowadays, it's becoming more and more aware, finally, that mental health well-being is an intrinsic part of holistic health. And we believe that when the mind is in balance, is balanced and is able to tap into our own inner wisdom, then we are able to take care of our physical needs and emotional needs. If I'm in stress level most of the time, then my mind is in chaos 
and I am not able to focus on whatever is important in my life, and then it has a knock-on effect on the physical body because mind and body are connected. And so when we take care of our mental health and our emotional needs, then we are more empowered to take care of our physical health as well. That's great. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure our, our listeners have benefited out of what you have uh, told us today. Um, could you tell our listeners about <coughs> what resources are available on your website, how, how they can you know, seek help? Yes, we have a lot of resources. Anyone who's listening who is a health professional uh, will find that they can download the whole trading pack of values in healthcare, a spiritual approach, and we give that now freely. We have a number of publications. We have some wonderful books, Lifting Your Spirits, also for the general public, The Heart of Wellbeing, which I've referred a little to, but it gives you wonderful practical tools to experiment with for your physical, mental, emotional well-being. Another one called Stillness in the Storm. And we also have uh, a um, Happy Dote, which is an app that can be downloaded by anyone who's maybe an unpaid carer or anyone in the health or social profession. They will find that there are these wonderful guided meditations, just five minutes long, that they really help when one is feeling overwhelmed by the workload. Um, there also, we offer free retreats and if you go on the web page, there's one coming up in November, and that one will be um, in-house, and it depends on where people live, where they can access that. And that is on, um, sorry, I'm just looking for 13th of November, and there are online sessions as well. And these can be for the public as well. So another one is coming up on the 22nd of November and another on the 4th of December. And they're self-care days. So I highly recommend them. And people just need to go on the jankyfoundation.org webpage and you can go on events and you will see what's there and available. That's great. Thank you very much, uh, Masana Lissosa, for joining us uh, this evening afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much, <coughs> and good wishes to you, your team, and everybody that's listening. Thank and you. And I w- wish everybody a peaceful evening and a peaceful week. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was uh, Masana Lissosa. She's a member of the Junkie Foundation Steering Group. And um, she obviously has uh, gone into details how you can benefit out of their um, their organization as well. Just to conclude, I mean, we have discussed in details about the relationship between faith and the mental health and how we can help. Uh, our uh, current head of the Ahmed Muslim community was uh, uh, once asked by, um, by the girls, small girls, uh, uh, he, and he was asked this question and he responded to that. Um, about these mental health issues. He said that often mental health issues are caused because we are involved too much in the materialistic things. The preference order of our desires and wishes has changed 
Instead of seeking Allah's love and Allah's closeness, we are running after worldly things. This is the main cause of it. And when the material desires are not fulfilled and you cannot get whatever you want, then you get frustrated and that frustration leads to anxiety. This is why Allah has said in the Holy Quran that remembrance of Allah is the best way to attain satisfaction of your heart and peace of mind. So if you remember Allah whenever you have any problem, you bow before him, you offer your five daily prayers fervently, sincerely, then Allah will give comfort and satisfy your heart and resultantly you will feel comfortable and better. So with that, we conclude our, uh, this hour and uh, please join us uh, for the next hour. And we'll be speaking in the, in, the, in the next hour about the ancient languages. So that will be an interesting topic to talk to. Uh, indeed. Uh, yes, Dr. Talibah, please join us after the uh, short news break and uh, we'll be discussing, as Dr. Tariq Bajwa mentioned, uh, the, the, the next topic. And uh, uh, please, uh, you know, stay tuned with us. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Welcome back here in... Uh, uh, drive time show of Voice of Islam. Uh, it's uh, Anik Rahman, and I'm joined by Dr. Tariq Pajwa and Usman Alianjum here in this the studio of Voice of Islam. In this hour, uh, we'll be discussing a very you know unique topic, uh, which is uh, uh, you know regarding ancient languages, and what uh, can we learn from those languages and discuss uh, the oldest language and the mother of the languages. And we'll be having some guests uh, to discuss this uh, topic further and we'll be having discussion within the studio. If you would like to share your views on it, please do call us on 0208-687-7878 and you can tweet at Voice of Islam UK or you can visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk. Through you know, the study of uh, linguistic evolution, we have uncovered the complexity complexities of human communication, the influence of migration and trade on language, and the adaption of you know, writing systems. Today, you know, Tamil stands as the oldest language is still in use, providing a connection to its rich linguistic history. However, among the world's ancient language, Arabic holds the esteemed title of the mother of all languages. And you know, in today's show, we will dig into the story behind this uh, this endearing title, that this Arabic tongue, you know, plain and clear. That's what the Holy Quran says in chapter 16, verse 104, that the Arabic, you know, tongue is plain and clear, easy to understand. And, you know, Egyptian and Sumerian and, you know, Akkadian are the oldest languages. And Egyptian, you know, uh, hierogelipus are on, the, uh, on one of the world's oldest writing systems dating back to ancient Egypt over 400,000 years ago. You know, these uh, intricate uh, pictorial uh, symbols were used for religious uh, inscriptions, monumental car uh, carvings, and official documents. However, the oldest spoken language today is Tamil, and it has roots dating back over 2,000 years. It evolved from a group of uh, Dravidian languages spoken in the southern Indian subcontinent, and you know, the endless research on ancient languages has revealed glimpses into the lives 
and cultures of ancient civilizations. So there are so many different languages, you know, and languages are always interesting. Even if, you know, you're living in UK and, uh, you know, you, you go to, to Wales and, and, you know, if somebody starts speaking with you Wales and you just look at him and uh, because you can't understand even a word of that. Um, similarly, you go north in Scotland, um, even the dialect changes from place to place. And there are so many different languages. So even in India, if you, th- if you think of in India, I mean, there are, uh, I, I think there are hundreds of languages which are being spoken. And if you take into consideration the different dialects, then there is no end to it. Um, so as I said, here, even in the UK, we have got different languages which are spoken with the different accents. And one uh, one is, uh, you know, amazed that how, how does it change? Although there are similarities at the borderline that, for example, if you are... Um, I remember in Pakistan when we have... We have four um, like provinces, and when you go on the, onto the border, uh, one language you can see it is merging into the other one. Like we have got Sindh, and in Sindh, Sindhi language is spoken. But then, if you are going towards Punjab at the border, there is another language, which is called Saraiki. You know, Saraiki is the mixture of Sindhi and Punjabi. So that's a, that, that's a different language which is in between. Similarly, if you travel up to north and then we have an um, area where um, Punjab is joined be, with the, uh, the Pakhtunkhwa, there they speak uh, the Pashto language. That's a very, very different languages. But, um, you know, you have got in between the Hindko language. Hindko is, again, a mixture. And then in Kashmir, they have different languages. So languages are, I mean, it's amazing. If you start studying the language, the more you know about them, the more you start enjoying how the languages have been made and how they develop and how, like, for example, in um, in Urdu, our common language which we speak, we have got so many different words which it has incorporated into it. And they can be you know, those people who lived in Africa, for example, East Africa, they see a lot of Swahili words and they are in their spoken language. Uh, and similarly, um, when you are uh, living here in England, lots of English words are have become a part of our language of Urdu language so they they get merged into it but today we are we are talking about the ancient languages and how what was the the very first language and there is a lot of discussion has been taken place that what was the like the first language on earth and we just heard about the um, hieroglyphs which were like the pictorial presentation of the language, how they communicated, um, you know, it's a means of communication, basically. And if you if you see that uh, there is uh, sort of, uh, um, I, I visited uh, Egypt, and in many, many of, this is the Valley of Kings, where you find the tombs of the, of the kings who were buried. And uh, when you enter these, uh, these are like caves, and when you enter the, the all the walls, they are full of these, uh, you know, inscription and these all um, the the pictorial language. You can and they are very neatly written, and you can you can study them. And and, and these are the these are about four thousand years old. And uh, then Tamil language, of course, is two thousand years um, uh, old. But the thing is that what was the language of uh, Prophet Adam, on whom be peace? Who, who was the first? Uh, first prophet on earth. So, of course, I mean, they, they had their own language, but of course, 
the revelation which took place is considered to be in Arabic because Arabic is the language of God. And uh, the head of the, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadiyan, you know, he was given special knowledge of Arabic and he wrote a book which is called, uh, the named as Minanur Rahman. Minanur Rahman means uh, the blessings of, uh, of uh, the compassionate God. And uh, in this book, he has actually proved that Arabic is the mother of the, all the languages. So all, it is such a comprehensive language that all the, all the other languages have come out of this particular language. Although, you know, the Arabic language has its origins in the Arabian Peninsula well before the 5th century with its earliest written records dating back into the 4th century. So the region was home to various tribes that spoke different dialects of Arabic. And an and, and interesting thing that people, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, even at that time when the, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, he was born, they did take care, a lot of care of the languages that people speak the correct language in the right dialect. And uh, so that is, was one reason that he was sent out of his home, and he was taken by Hazrat Halima, who was the wet nurse, and she, she actually, um, and the purpose was so that he learns the pure language of Arabic, and that's why this, this language is called Fusa Arab, Fusa Arabic language. That was the clear and uh, uh, sort of literary Arabic language. So, if you look at uh, the history, in early history, Arabic primarily served as a spoken language, playing a vital role in trade, in poetry, in storytelling. Over time, it evolved into the written language we are familiar with today. And uh, in this book, Arabic Mother of All Languages, uh, the book Minanur Rahman, which I just mentioned, the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadiyan, on whom be peace, he said, the Arabic language possesses excellent qualities and signs which in the eyes of scholars invest it with the status of a mother in relation to other languages. And these languages are like a shadow in relation to Arabic or like a sparrows in relation to a praying falcon. Um, that's, a, that's a beautiful simile here um, that, you know, how, how you can relate uh, Arabic language to other languages. Arabic he, he, uh, has been called the mother of all languages by the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mizawullah Muhammad. Uh, in this book, which was written in May 1895. So this is due to the fact that many languages today have been heavily influenced by Arabic. Uh, for example, Spanish, Turkish, Portuguese, Kurdish, Urdu, Indonesian, and many more languages. Qazi Abdul Hamid, the translator of this insightful book, comments, this thesis claims that the first speech taught to men was the one taught by God himself and that this speech was Arabic, all the other languages being the offsprings or offshoots of Arabic, which have developed as corruptions of the primeval language. So, you know, carry on this discussion. We'll be having uh, our first guest, who is, uh, we have already had the pre-recording, and uh, he is mastered in uh, Arabic language, even though his uh, you know, mother tongue is Urdu, or you can say English, but... He has learned Arabic language and we will uh, listen to his interview and we will be back after that.
Now we're going to go to our next guest. Uh, we have Imran Salam with us. He's a missionary of Ahmadiyya Muslim Association, currently working in MTA Al Arabiya. Assalamu alaikum, Imran Salam. Thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. for inviting To move on and discuss uh, this subject further, could you please let our listeners know how has learning Arabic enhanced your understanding of the Holy Quran and Ahadith? Jazakumullah for the question. It's a very important question. Yeah, of course. Uh, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, learning Arabic because the Quran itself is in Arabic, so it does, of course, help uh, learning and understanding Arabic. And, of course, it helps understanding uh, Quran as well. Uh, for example, there are so many Arabic uh, uh, terms which are used um, in Quran as well. For mm. example, Daraba Mathalan. For if you would translate this uh, uh, with word by word, it would it would make any sense. But if you know a bit of Arabic, that actually means to present or give an example. So learning Arabic and um, understanding Arabic does help also understanding Quran and Hadith because it is uh, Arabic. So, so it does have uh, it does hope uh, to some extent but of course uh, I would also like to say uh, that with um, reading the translation and understanding the Quran what God Almighty is saying the word of God it's also important to read the Fasir and uh, read what Khulafa and uh, Promise Messiah himself the commentary of the the commentaries yeah, yeah he presented so just the translation of uh, Quran is no enough yeah of course uh, understanding com- comprehending quran it's very vital we do uh, also read the tafsir com- commentaries You're very much right to just learn translation we can understand what is written there but we cannot fully understand what actually god wants to uh, you know say or want to draw our attention towards yes so c- c- could you please share a moment where you know when your newfound knowledge of the language profoundly impacted your connection to islam uh basically um like i started learning arabic when i went to jamia hmm. so before that i had uh, no interest or i wasn't into arabic that much uh so in jamia because all the literature islamic literature and the quran hadith and even the old commentaries are tafsir are in arabic so if you do understand arabic you can directly read those uh, literatures uh in uh, literature instead hmm. again very much right um, you know many muslims around the world would like to learn arabic however it's among the most difficult languages to learn so hmm. what practical steps can uh, can they take to start learning the language so yeah uh, learning a new language it is uh, difficult and uh, it does take hard work to learn a language but of course if you learn anything new no not just arabic if you learn any new language it is mm. difficult to learn not just uh, arabic and uh, to take few steps what i can tell you what i did was in the beginning because uh, i started from ground zero i didn't know anything about arabic so i started reading uh, uh, story books which are usually for kids mm. so i started from there on and then i slowly gradually um started reading bigger books uh, which have more 
and uh, other terms in and uh, slowly slowly then i moved into um, news i also yeah i would like to say with reading arabic it's also important you um listen to arabic and also speak because uh, by reading you can uh, get to know the terms and the translation um but how to pronounce some words mm. and the accent of uh, arabic uh, that you can only learn through listening and speaking especially uh, arabic so mm. yeah, these are few steps you know very interesting uh, many people are daunted by the idea of learning a new language can you share uh, uh, you know a tip uh, from your own journey that may inspire others what motivates yeah, you basically yeah you can, basically yeah. what i can say is um again learning a language is not easy of course it takes hard work and it is difficult but of course uh, doing anything anything and there's no i think they, they also asked me before this you asked me is few steps how uh, you can there's no shortcut to learning uh, arabic so if you want to learn arabic so you you will have to put your effort into it. and um, for me for example i studied arabic in jamia that's 7 years and till now this day i'm learning arabic every day learning new words new terms but yeah this goes on and uh, it does take time is there's no shortcut but again um one more point is that you need to have a passion hmm. and a love for arabic so um so if you want to learn arabic it needs to be a consistency you need to have consistency and you need to if because you can't just put hard work in if you don't like or don't love it, something so if you like and uh, love arabic you will also put effort into it and give your time to it so the key i think to learning arabic is the passion if you have the passion to learn arabic then inshallah hopefully you will do it yeah, indeed we have tried i think without passion nothing uh, can be done and uh, uh, it is great to see that a uh, person of course uh, all of us are uh, we are you know from uh, urdu background or or pakistani background and learning a language is not easy and especially arabic uh, learning and speaking well is very uh, very rare nowadays so you know uh, god bless you and uh, thank you very much for joining us today which it was a pleasure speaking with you and i hope our listeners have benefited from this uh, and have a nice evening jazakumullah assalamu alaikum warahmatullah You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back after the <coughs> you know pre-recording uh, or the interview which we got from um, Imran Salam who has learned Arabic and I seen myself uh, you know I seen myself uh, him working on Arabic when he uh, started the university and uh, Indeed, I think it takes a lot of effort to 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 learn a language and go in depth. Sometimes you can say just few words and a few things in a language, but I think having a full control over the language is very important. And for this, you have to you know uh, learn by you know 
start from the small books and listening and going in the you know uh, amazing literature and learning the the true arabic uh, which i think he has done it and uh, you know it's amazing uh, because it's not something easy uh, to to do you know uh, moving on the expansion of arabic uh, due to the holy quran arabic is the language uh, which is the quran uh, the holy book of islam you know was revealed uh, to the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and it is you know divine uh, revelation and uh, it is original text is preserved in arabic so you know uh, this makes arabic the language of islamic scripture we we find uh, that you know even the god um, send uh, his all the, the holy book um, you know in, in arabic and uh, you know arabic spread began in you know arabian peninsula where it originated during the 7th century and the expansion was initiated and led by the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and uh, we know you know we have not sent uh, god almighty says and i would read that uh, you know and we have not sent any messenger except the language uh, of his people in order that he might make things clear to them then allah uh, lets uh, go astray whom he will and he guides whom he wills chapter 14 uh, verse 5 So you know the rapid expansion of Islamic empire in the 7th and 8th centuries played a significant role in the you know dissemination of Arabic language and Arabic uh, became the language of you know administration uh, governance and religion and culture within the newly conquered territories and Arabic was used as you know as the official language of the caliphates and empires that you know emerged in the middle east it served as administrative language you know facilitating communication and governance throughout territories today you know there are numerous different uh, dialects of arabic such as egyptian you know uh, levantine in the gulf and maghribi and many more you know and Um, uh, the Holy Quran in the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty says in chapter 30 verse 23 that among his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and colors in that surely are signs for those who possess knowledge so when we look uh, you know in the uh, just this only this verse we find that you know everything which we have around us we, we find through these things that God exists and one of the things God had mentioned that this even you know having a different dialect or different languages and languages are coming out of languages and we are understanding each other and we are explaining each other and you know the latter is is been sent on particular language you know to having that you know ability to speak to understand and you know on each area the you know the language changes even in uk if you look you know londoners they speak different accent they different dialect then if you move on to you know uh, north and then you go to scotland even sometimes you can't understand at all what what they're saying so the dialects changes and even though people are understanding it so god almighty says there are signs uh, in these for uh, those uh, who possess his knowledge now i believe we have our next guest uh, and uh, I would like to ask Usman and Anjum if you can uh, you know go ahead and uh, you know introduce our guest. Um so we'd like to welcome Andrew Ford an expert in Greek language and 
literature. Assalamu alaikum. Andrew, are you with us? Peace and blessings be upon you. And thank you much for joining us today. I think uh, uh, we have uh, this is a problem going on. Anyways, uh, he will be with us after uh, you know a few minutes. And uh, you know, as I was discussing, you know, everything has a sign of God Almighty, where you know God says in the tongues, in the colors. So we need to have uh, you know look into these things. That this is not something merely which we have around us. There's so much going on. You know, sometimes I think myself sitting. How come I'm understanding the other person? How come? The different languages and, you know, sometimes if you go after 100, 200 miles in some countries, in, let's go in, in Africa or, you know, in, 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 in India, we see that the languages keep changing after a few miles and, or, you know, a couple of hundred miles. So, again, you know, it's, uh, again, sign of uh, God Almighty says in the Holy Quran that I've given you knowledge. Uh, now, let's uh, move once again uh, to our guest, Usman uh, al so we'd like to welcome Andrew Ford, expert in Greek language and literature. Hopefully you're with us this time. Yes, I'm here. Welcome to the show. Uh, we'd just like to ask you, what motivated you to learn an ancient language and what drew you to the specific language that you have chosen to study? Thank you. Yes, I uh, have a very vivid memory of being about, I guess, seven years old. And uh, my father would drag me to uh, Catholic church to uh, hear the mass which was in latin and i was rather uh, restless and so he uh he gave me his uh missal which is the book that has the liturgy in it and had an interlinear translation so i uh, could hear the priest say et ad altare dei and uh the english underneath said i will enter the altar of god and so uh, I saw altare must mean altar, and dei sounded like deity, and uh, I was off. It just seemed to me that the language was uh, pretty um, interesting, different, but intelligible, and uh, I kept up with it. And then from Latin, when you uh, go to university, uh, they encourage you to study Greek as well, and because the two cultures were uh, very interrelated, and uh, much of the uh, Roman philosophy and literature was built on Greek models, and uh, I just found the Greeks enchanting, and I stayed with them. Mm. And are there any unique challenges you uh, involved in, you know, learning ancient languages, uh, especially compared to more contemporary ones? And uh, how have you really been able to overcome these challenges? Well, the um, the uh, vocabulary, the, the alphabet isn't hard because uh, it's really basically the Latin alphabet. It's a Semitic alphabet that uh, was adapted by the Greeks around 800 BCE and then uh, spread to Rome. Um, the, gra the vocabulary is related, as I just said. So what's really difficult for, I think, modern students is uh, the grammar. Uh, uh, even in good schools, uh, even in college, uh, these days uh, students uh, don't learn grammar um, before they come to university. So, uh, you know, just even uh, this is a noun and this is a verb can be challenging, I mm. think, to them. Of course, yeah. And also, how does your study of ancient languages contribute to your understanding of history um, and culture and heritage? Uh, because I know these can play a part in these things as well. And also, if you could just, like, provide any uh, example of a significant insight you've, insight you've gained uh, through these studies. Well, I'll, I'll start with the insight. Um, 
I must say that uh, there's an old saying in English, and you've probably never heard this. Anybody who is not a revolutionary at 20 has no heart, and anyone who's a revolutionary at 40 has no brains. And uh, the, uh, in classics, you could say uh, anybody who, uh, who doesn't love Plato at 20 has no heart, and anybody who is not an Aristotelian at 40 has no brain. So f for me, uh, I love both those writers. And um, I, uh, I started out with Plato's beautiful uh, mysticism, but uh, I find that as I live my life now, uh, Aristotle is really a, a very reliable guide. I was just reading the other day um, in his book of Ethics, where he, uh, he says that, uh, what is happiness? Uh, happiness is being active in an area in which you are excellent. And so uh, I thought that I tell my my girls that I say, um, do something, find something that you're good at and do it. It doesn't matter how high or low the job may be regarded, but if you do it well, when you're doing it well, happiness is there. So that's my my uh, personal belief. But more broadly, uh, the culture and heritage, two separate things. Culture is huge because. The great way that uh, classics uh, informs you is that it should be studied that you not only just read the literary text and the philosophical text, but you read history and you look at the material culture. You look at how they built houses, how they built temples, how they built ships and everything. So you get a picture of a, of a, of a complicated world. And once you uh, look at that world and try and understand it, then you look back and try and look at yourself, and you can see more of your own society for having tried to get a global view of another society. So that's, that's why it's uh, very interesting culturally. Heritage is a difficult question because, as you probably know, um, there's been for a good 25 years at least uh, a lot of challenge to the idea of Western civilization. That's what... Uh, the, the, the value that used to be ascribed to the classics, that they were the founders of Western civilization. And uh, this could unfortunately play into a very, very damaging fundamental opposition between a clash of cultures between the West and the East, for example. And uh, I personally find that when I read the, the Greeks, especially, or the Romans, that yes, there are in that culture, people who, like people in our culture, assume that they are the best and the only ones. But your sense of humanity and of our shared shared beliefs, feelings, institutions uh, is so enlarged that I disagree with those who think that it's damaging to uh, study these very influential texts. There's no doubt of their influence, for good or bad, but, but there's so much good to be had from looking at uh, from just realizing that 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, 2,800 years ago, somebody could say something and it resonates with you, it strikes you as true. It relieves the, the loneliness of modernity, doesn't it? And um, it also is a, a reminder that uh, no matter where and when we live, we have a common humanity. That's my own reason for defending the humanities in this very polemical time. Of course. And, you know, another thing is in terms of learning a new language nowadays, if I was to, for example, I can use my own example when, you know, I moved over from Germany, 
the one of the ways of learning English was, you know, one with the colleagues um, or maybe with classmates and also by watching programs. But in terms of ancient languages, they often lack native speakers. So how do you approach uh, mm-hmm. approach things like pronunciation and language uses in your studies? An excellent point. And I, I really, uh, I could go on quite a while for it, but let me just give a sketchy answer. Um, uh, I totally relate to you with programs. And for me, it was sitting at a cafe with people and talking a little bit. And then somebody would say something, you go, oh, that's how you say that. So I learn languages really by social situations when I hear something said and I know from the context exactly what it means. But it's uh, not time efficient to do that, although you know, people who have means can do things like junior year abroad. So what you do instead is you teach a grammar and as I said, uh, that's a tough sell to some uh, people. Um, and uh, I, I like grammar. I, I think the grammar of Greek is beautiful, it's complex, and it hangs together with the system. But I have learned from teaching that it really is true that there are more than one ways that people learn language. There's no single right way. So although I was uh, known as a pretty fun uh, grammar teacher, uh, some, some of the students really... Uh, you know, we're slow to get it. And I realize uh, more and more now, I wish I realized it from the first day, that um, you just have to allow people to absorb it in other ways. Um, some people today are teaching Greek, not by uh, opening the grammar book, but by speaking it to the students, beginning, they speak ancient Greek. And they're, it's quite fun, and, and they're, they're quite good at it. So uh, it, it depends on the individual, when, uh, if I had a, a student in my beginning Greek class who was a physics major, they tended to be A-plus students because somehow they appreciated the complexity and the systematicity of it all. And, uh, but the people that were um, a little bit less in command of their grammar, at least I knew not to disrespect them and to uh, keep uh, con- encouraging them along until they could find as, mu- as much of it as they needed to through other means. And you know, as you just mentioned as well that you taught uh, grammar, uh, could you describe the role of modern technology in your efforts to learn and interpret uh, ancient languages? Interpreting, I think, is around the corner. This chat GPT is scary, and I do uh, not doubt from my use of translation programs. I Occasionally, uh, you know, we'll use a program that uh, checks German or French or Italian. Um, but uh, so I, I don't think the uh, you can't go to the computers for um, for uh, translations. But what you can do, and actually the discipline of ancient Greek and Latin studies was actually early on a pioneer in digitalizing it. And partly, I think, because so many people were interested in reading the Bible. Uh, the New Testament, of course, is written in Greek. And so what you can do is you can get a, uh, a Greek text, and then you click on a word, and it will send you to the dictionary, and it will tell you about the grammar. Is this the noun? Is it the subject, etc.? So right now, it's a lot easier than uh, 
than when I studied. As a matter of fact, I wonder, I give vocabulary quizzes and make them learn the alphabet very rapidly so they could look things up in, in big fat dictionaries. And now I, I realize that that's very old technology and I'm kind of, if I were doing it now, I would be putting them through, making them to, to ride around in a horse's buggy. So it's coming, it's coming. Well, thank you very much, uh, Andrew Ford. Really appreciate your time today um, and hope you have a good evening. Thank you very much and all the best to you and your interesting show. Thank you very much. That was Andrew Ford, an expert in Greek language and literature. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I hope our listeners have benefited from this and uh, must have enjoyed his uh, interview. I think it's not easy to learn any language. And as you were saying that uh, you came from <clears throat> Germany and, uh, you know, you learn a new language. I think so much effort goes into it. <clears throat> but one of the things, as you were mentioning, is very easy if you have people around you speaking the same language and you just catch up. And especially if you're young and, you know, some when you are uh, grown up, you have so many questions comes up why this is like this. But when you're young, you don't even think about it and just keep saying it. And slowly, gradually, you start, you know, speaking uh, that language and you know you, after a few years you, you're perfect and uh, you, you know slowly by taking some other uh, you know um, um, going to university you're going to college uh, that language progress day by day so anyways I think we have our uh, next guest with us and uh, uh, please uh, Suman Alianju please go ahead with them uh, we'd like to welcome Theo van den Hout PhD in Anatolian and Hittite history uh, are you there, sir? Yes, I am. Yeah. And thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Um, in terms of um, your experience, what insights or lessons can we gain from the past that are relevant to our present and future? And how would you respond to critics who would argue that, you know, focusing on the past is less important than addressing current challenges? Um yeah, I, I think if there is, and I'm certainly not the first one to, to say that, but I think if there's one thing we learned from history is that we don't learn from history. Um, and <laughs> it doesn't matter whether that is recent history, uh, think Second World War or so, 20th century history, or even the uh, history of the earliest uh, 21st century, or way back the period that I'm interested in so the uh, what we call the the Bronze Age, the period between let's say 1600 uh, BC and and 1200, which is about the time of the Hittite uh, kingdom. Um, I don't think that really matters. Um, I I do think we can learn from history um, and and to. Critics of uh, who, as, as you put it, who argue that focusing on the past is less important than addressing current challenges. Um, I, I think that um, at least they're wrong in the sense that what we experience now on a daily basis is, I think, never unique. Um, the uh, the principles are the same. Just this morning I read a, a quote, uh, the past is a foreign country, they do things differently there. And, and that is 
certainly on a service level, that is true. We all know that you travel to a different country, a different continent. They have different food. They have different gestures. They have different senses of humor and so forth. But I think deeper down, um, the human psyche, the human mind is... I would say universal in that our feelings of grief and joy and love and our feelings about family and so forth, I think they are throughout history and throughout the world, at least that's what I believe, uh, very much the same. And um, so the, 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 the fact that the, the past can look different, I think deep down uh, it isn't. And and that is where, and, and I think that's an important thing always to remember when we uh, react to, to, uh, to situations in our world. Um, history tends to repeat itself. And uh, whether you want to learn from that, whether you want to inform yourself how the past, how past countries, uh, past people uh, dealt with certain problems. Uh, if, if you want to learn from that, that's, that's up to uh, people themselves. Uh, I think it's always, um, it, it, it broadens your horizon to be informed about the past. Also, you know, languages play a crucial role in preserving the cultural heritage of ancient civilizations. Uh, could you please discuss the significance of linguistic diversity and how it contributes to a deeper appreciation of history itself? Yeah. Um, well, if you learn a language, whether it's another modern language or whether it's an ancient language, each language comes with a culture, with its own history. And um, that past that history and again whether it's recent history or or it goes way back into antiquity um uh, that is that informs us about these past cultures and that is also something that you cannot suppress uh for, for example in in uh in spain in the franco era so between 36 and 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 uh, until about 75, when Spain was uh, governed by a dictatorship of Francisco Franco. Um, the, all the local languages, think of Catalan, the Catalan language, uh, Galician, uh, Basque, for example, uh, they were suppressed, they were forbidden, they were... Uh, uh, if you as a Catalan local author wanted to publish a book, uh, that was very difficult. It had to go through um, uh, censorship and so forth. But in the end, that is not something that you as a regime can uh, suppress. You have to deal with that linguistic diversity of the nation state that you uh, govern and um, and as I said, they each uh, come with their uh, with their different uh, history and 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 different customs and so forth. Um, so it, I think it's 
Uh, and if you then study those individual languages, um, you, you, you can learn a lot. Um, for example, in, 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 uh, I think it's very interesting that in the area that I work in, so the Hittite language of the Hittite kingdom between 1600 and 1200, roughly BC, um, and that goes for a lot of at least Mediterranean cultures, um, the, the past was that at which you uh, is is be, is um, is in front of you. Um, when people look ahead, they see the past. The past is what they confront. The past is what they can see. Whereas the future is usually expressed as something behind you that you cannot see. The 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 future is invisible, and it makes a lot of sense. We see that, nor at least in Western culture, often see that differently. The past is ahead of us. Um, and, and it would be actually very interesting to see where that, in, in, in Western culture, where that changed. And how universal, probably not, uh, how universal that view is that we look at the future, uh, we look ahead, whereas uh, for people in the ancient Mediterranean world, uh, the future uh, lay behind them and they, they couldn't see it. So um, it, there is a lot we can learn uh, and the, the linguistic diversity to maintain that as much as possible uh, is, I think, uh, very uh, important. And uh, actually, I mean, I was, uh, you see that in the Hittite kingdom as well, um, probably not for altruistic reasons, but the, in a way, the Hittite kings, the Hittite <coughs> ruling elite, excuse me, the Hittite ruling elite, um, they seem to have been interested in the linguistic diversity of their own culture in ancient Anatolia, which is nowadays the Republic of, of Turkey or Turkey. Um, so uh, I think they already understood the importance of, uh, of yeah, maintaining uh, local cultures, local customs and local languages. Of course. And in terms of evolution of languages, could you please shed some light upon the evolution of languages in Anatolian and Hittite history? Um, sure. I mean, in, uh, in the texts, and we're talking about clay tablets here, clay tablets written in cuneiform, but also inscriptions on stones, uh, with a with with a script that we call not quite uh, correctly, but okay, uh, that we call hieroglyphs, Anatolian hieroglyphs. The name, of course, immediately uh, uh, invokes uh, the Egyptian hieroglyphs, but they have nothing to do with that. Um, anyway, uh, in in Anatolia, uh, we have right now uh, we have knowledge of some ten ancient languages from that period that I mentioned. Uh, most of those languages are attested very poorly and, uh, and therefore we know them very poorly, but often enough uh, to see uh, to what kind of language family they belong. Um, and um, 
uh, but the one language that we really know well is the Hittite language. Uh, the uh, and if you if you ask about the evolution of languages uh, there in that period um, in 1915, uh, so altogether not that long ago, in 1915, the Hittite language was recognized as an Indo-European language, and still, mm. up to today, uh, Hittite is the oldest known Indo-European language, which means that it is uh, related to, in the ancient world, Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, uh, but in the modern world, it's related to uh, to, to English, to uh, other Germanic languages like, like Dutch um, and uh, French, Romance languages and, and so forth. The study of history and ancient cultures often involves deciphering ancient texts, artifacts and inscriptions. Can you share an incident where the interpretation of such materials had a profound impact on our understanding of a specific culture or historical period? Um, sure. Um, the, well, actually, my field, as I've mentioned it already, uh, Hittite, Hittitology, as we often refer to it, uh, is, is um, a case in point. Uh, up to 1915, that I just mentioned as the year in which Hittite was deciphered or finally understood and recognized as an Indo-European language, uh, up to that moment, we hardly knew anything about the Hittite kingdom. They were mentioned in uh, the Old Testament. They were mentioned in some Egyptian monuments. They were uh, mentioned in some uh, Assyrian uh, monument uh, uh, texts from Mesopotamia. Uh, but we people were wondering, uh, who were these Hittites that are mentioned there? And, uh, we, and we even located them incorrectly. Um, until then, in uh, 1915, there was this Czech scholar who, yeah, you could say, broke the code in a, in a way, mm. suddenly recognized uh, these Hittite texts as writing down an a language of the Indo-European, of Indo-European character, of the Indo-European language family. And suddenly we were able, I mean, in the beginning <clears throat> it was still uh, uh, slow going, but uh, over time, or actually pretty fast, uh, we were able to uh, understand, read those texts. And that suddenly brought up a whole culture that was basically forgotten. Um, not like Egyptian, ancient Egyptian civilization, which all throughout antiquity into the modern times uh, was still part of the uh, of, 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 yeah, of, of our historical memory. Uh, every um, or <clears throat> most Western cultures uh, since the, uh, the, the, the time of the ancient Egyptians knew about them. Uh, whereas Hittite culture had been completely forgotten. And so when this scholar finally uh, made it possible for us to understand all these tens of thousands of clay tablets with the cuneiform script, uh, suddenly a whole culture arose that we hadn't known of before. 
Thank you very much for your time, Theo van der Hout, PhD in Anatolian and High Tide History. It was my pleasure. Uh, it was an honor, and I hope you have a good evening. Um, thank yeah. you for your time. Same to you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. So uh, we were listening to our guest. He has, you know, given a detailed answer on each question. I hope our listeners have, uh, you know, enjoyed the answers. Moving on, and to conclude this today's session, you know, Arabic uh, is used in Islamic rituals and prayers nowadays, and Muslims around the world recite specific Arabic verses and phrases during daily prayers, making Arabic a central element of worship. And to fully comprehend the Quran and the Hadith, uh, and you know the saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, a deep understanding of Arabic is essential. And scholars are, you know, uh, the, the theology can study Arabic to in, interpret uh, and explain Islamic texts accurately. God Almighty says in the Holy Quran that we have revealed it, the Quran in Arabic, that you may understand, which is in chapter 12, verse 3. The Ahmadiyya Muslim community has translated the Holy Quran into 70 languages so that readers can comprehend in their own language. However, it is important that the original text is also taught as it was revealed to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, by Allah in Arabic. From a young age, Muslim children are taught, to, taught Arabic alphabets so they are able to read the Holy Quran. And, you know, the Arabic language uh, serves as a unifying language among Muslims worldwide, regardless of their na native language. Muslims use Arabic in their religious practices, fostering a sense of unity and common identity with the global Muslim community. Uh, at the end, I would like to read a strike that says, All praise is due to Allah, the sustainer, the beneficent. To him belongs all excellence, grace and goodness. He created man and taught him a plain language and out of one language he created various languages in different countries just as he created a various colors of mankind out of one color and he made Arabic the mother of all language he made it like of the sun in brightness and luster it was from the book of the promised Messiah so with this we would like to conclude today's session I hope you have enjoyed today I would like to thank all the producer and technical team until next time Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh